new beginning. All right, welcome to the Grief Dreams podcast. My name is Sean Ram alongside Dr. Joshua Black. Uh, happy to be here doing this uh, podcast again. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Really appreciate it. Thank you as well for those who have donated through Patreon. Appreciate you guys uh, supporting the work that we've done here on the podcast. So, Joshua, how are you doing today? A little sick, Sean. I, uh, I'm at that stage where I'm not sure if it's going to go full-blown sickness or if it's just like one of those sore throats that goes away. But we'll see. So uh, let's get this started before I get worse. <laughs> well, I got a couple of days off to kind of recover and hopefully we can uh, brighten your mood. I'm sure after this podcast, you'll feel hopefully a little better. Yeah, let's get it going. So on today's podcast, we have with us Andrea Wilson-Woods. And she is a writer who loves to tell stories and a patient advocate who founded the nonprofit Blue Fairy, the Adrian Wilson Liver Cancer Association. Andrea is the CEO and co-founder of Cancer University, a for-profit social benefit digital health company. With Cancer U, Andrea synergizes her talent of coaching, writing, teaching, and advocacy. For over 10 years, Andrea worked in the education field as a teacher and, and a professor for public and private schools as well as universities. Andrea obtained her master's degree in professional writing from the University of Southern California, and her nonfiction writing has won national awards. So her new book, uh, which is a medical memoir, is titled Better Off Bald, A Life in 147 Days. And uh, yeah, Andrea, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I know I read a little bit about your book, and it's really about your relationship with your sister. And I'm really curious, I'd like to start off with, what was it like living with your sister? Well, it depends on what time you're asking about. So when I was 22 years old, I was living in Los Angeles. I had graduated from USC um, undergrad at that point, and my sister came out to visit me for what was supposed to be a two-week Christmas vacation, and it turned into a permanent stay because our mother decided she did not want to be a mother anymore, and, that, and that's an exact quote there. And so I became my sister's legal guardian and parent when I was 22, and she was eight. So um, we had a very specific relationship in that I was her parent first, and then I was her sister, and I was really looking forward to when she, you know, became an adult to to being her friend. Wow, that's so interesting how that was part of your life. What I'm just trying to figure that out. So how did that <laughs> even work for you to be the legal guardian? Like was there a discussion between you and your sister? Was it between you and your mom? Like how how does that work? Well, my sister like I said was visiting me and the day after Christmas my mother called and spoke to me and, and said those exact words that she didn't want to be a mother anymore and she was tired. And I didn't put it together at the time, but it was a few days before my mother's 50th birthday. So I don't know if she was having some sort of midlife crisis, but our mother was also um, an addict and she had been a pretty high functioning addict until about a year prior to that. And she ended up losing her nursing license for shooting up morphine at work. and her life kind of just fell apart from that point forward and she wasn't able to hold down a job. And um, so I, I think it's even possible that she planned all along to send my sister out and then, you know, not take her back. But I knew that my sister's life had been really disrupted the, the past two years. And I told my mother, I said, well, if I take her, I am not going to give her back. I'm not going, I will take you to court. And my mother was like, oh, okay, whatever. And, 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 and this conversation with my sister is another story, which I'm happy to tell you. But, um, but then that's what ended up happening was my mother changed her mind about eight months later, said her life was more stable. But at that point, my sister was doing really well and things had calmed down and, and she was happy. And I, did not give my sister back and we ended up going to court and then I became her legal guardian. Yeah, that's, um, thank you for sharing. I mean, thank you for being so open about that um, because I can imagine uh, just the, the wave of uh, emotions and kind of uh, what, what, what that would have entailed for you, for your sister and for your mother and anybody else in your family um, going through those type of changes. 
talking about your mom and, and people suffer, people go through some things and, you know, you decided that you would take this on and, and, and that, that sounds incredible. What were some of those emotions? I mean, if you could think back of when you were going through that, because you're still obviously a young person, you're, you're trying to yeah. develop <laughs> your life, grow your life. And here you have to kind of take on uh, more, take on a different role, take on something that you had, your mo- mother had previously kind of taken on those roles. What was that like? Well, I like to say I live my life backwards. So in my 20s, I was raising a kid. And in my 30s, I got married. And then in my 40s, I found a career. So I just, I just everything, <laughs> I did everything in reverse. That's all. Yeah. Um, you know, I honestly, I didn't think about it. I, I really did not give it a second thought. I had helped raise my sister in high school. There was a 14-year age difference. Um, I always called myself my mother's housewife. So my sister and I had the same mother, but different fathers. Her father died before she was born in a car accident. So she never got a chance to know him. And I mean, I was taking care of my sister from the day she was born. And so I knew at some point in her life, she would probably come to live with me. I just didn't think it would happen that soon and that she would be so young and I would be so young. Um, but I just, I really did not have an understanding of how significant it was until much later, especially now that I see my goddaughter, for example, is in her twenties and she can't even take care of herself. You know, she's never lived on her own. She's never been independent really. And it just never occurred to me. I mean, my sister didn't have anybody else. I was the only person she she had and i mean there was just there wasn't an option and what was your sister's name adrian yeah i should mention that <laughs> adrian and so what was the conversation like for you and her in the sense of you being the legal guardian was that something that she really wanted i don't think she really understood what it meant initially and she was okay initially with it and then a few months into living with me i I remember she threw this horrible temper tantrum in public. I mean, like a two-year-old temper tantrum. Only at that point, she had just turned nine. And we came back to our apartment. I sent her to her room. And and she was just, I mean, she was just kind of flipping out. And and I actually slapped her arm. And and I was furious with her. And um I threatened her and because she kept saying, well, I just want to go back home. I want to go back to Alabama. I want to do this, you know, and I said, okay. And I called her bluff and I did something which you cannot do these days. I actually called the airlines because back then you usually made airline reservations over the phone and they would hold your reservation for 24 hours. So I called the airlines right in front of her and made her a reservation to fly back to Alabama and knowing that uh, one, I didn't even have the money to pay for the ticket. And two, there was nobody in Alabama. Even our mother wasn't living in Alabama anymore. And I told her to start packing her bags. And I walked out of the bedroom and just waited in the living room. And I, I knew that that moment was really critical. At that point, she had been living with me for about four and a half months. And I knew that was a turning point. Either she was going to accept accept me as an authority figure or she wasn't. And I kept hearing all this noise in the bedroom and she was clearly throwing things around. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and then she actually, she came out and, and, uh, and she said, uh, you know, okay, I want to stay. And that's when I set that, that line and, you know, and I made that boundary with her and I said, look, I'm your parent first and then your sister. And I hope one day when you grow up, I will be your friend. And she was like, okay, parent, sister, friend, I got it. And I said, okay. Mm-hmm. And she never through that kind of tipper tantrum in public ever again. Wow. That's uh it's very interesting. And you can only, you can see the, the confusion I, w- I would think that was in her mind too, of mm-hmm. feeling like she had an option to go back. Like there was that option. Yeah. Did you ever, did you ever talk to her about, because she suffered the loss of her dad and then her mom more or less abandoned her. Did yeah. you guys ever have any conversation about like mentally, like what she was going through? Yeah, we we really did, especially when um, she was diagnosed with with stage four cancer. But I was very open with her about our mother. I remember our mother before she had a drug problem and 
my sister never got to see that person and it was a real shame. And the only mother she ever knew was someone who had a drug problem. And like I said, our mother was a very high functioning addict, so she could hide it pretty well, but she always kind of knew something was off. And we had very open discussions, um, especially as she became a teenager and she was exposed to just more of her friends who were experimenting with drugs and it helped her stay very level-headed about it. Um, but it also gave her this, this fear to the point where very early on in her cancer journey, she was afraid to even ask for pain medication because she was afraid of becoming an addict. So we had to have this whole other conversation with her nurse to explain the difference between taking pain medication because you have a very serious disease versus taking pain medication because you're trying to numb emotional pain and then you become addicted. So um, we were very open about it. Oh, that's good because I think that's like, I wouldn't know what to say in that situation. It's such a heartbreaking situation that children do go through when it comes to that. Um, But I'm glad you were there for her and were able to be there as a support so she didn't feel completely alone and abandoned. Um, In the in your the bio for the book, it mentioned that she was very depressed before she got notification of having cancer. So what was that like going through that aspect of her life with her? She really struggled in middle school. And I think, at least for girls, middle school is the toughest time. I mean, I was actually teaching seventh grade and I used to joke with my seventh graders that I would never go back to seventh grade. Like you couldn't pay me all the money in the world to go back to seventh grade. And, and she got into middle school and I knew she was struggling to fit in. And, you know, I can't imagine how hard it was for her to not have a mom and a dad to instead have a sister. And um, I also had a very serious boyfriend who was really the only father figure she ever had. And they were very close and, but it still must have been very hard for her. And I didn't know how bad things were until one day I had threatened her about cleaning up her room. Oh my goodness. She was the biggest slob. It drove me nuts. And so (laughs) I gave her, you know, a deadline to clean her room. And I said, I just want to see the floor. Like, that's it. Just show me the floor. And she didn't do it. And so I cleaned up her room and I came across a very detailed, very well-written suicide note. And it was almost a will. It was, you know, this person gets these possessions and this person gets these, and it and it had a date on it in the future. Like, this is the day I'm going to commit suicide. This is why. And it was so detailed and so well thought out. It just scared the daylights out of me. And we found someone like within a week to take her to therapy. And she ended up um, staying with that therapist, um, you know, really for the rest of her life. And even though, even when she was feeling better, she said, you know, I really like having someone to talk to because I, I know she didn't tell me everything. And, um, and even though I changed her name in the book, I think she would be okay (laughs) with me saying it on the podcast um, because I just saw her uh, last year, but Denise was really a blessing for our family. She was an incredible therapist. She specialized in treating teenagers. And there were times where you know, Adrian and I would not communicate well with each other. Um, and she would really help us figure out those lines of communication. And um, because as she got older, she would definitely argue with me. She wouldn't argue with other people, but she would argue with me. And and it was nice. It was nice to have that person in our lives. And it was um, it was very important for Adrian too. So it took her it took her a while to come out of that depression. And she was really finding herself and and figuring out who she was. And she stopped worrying about what other people thought, which is incredible. And I, not even weeks before she was diagnosed, I had said to, to my boyfriend, I said, wow, like we are so lucky, you know, um, our kids are healthy. And by our kids, I met my sister and, and he had a son from a previous relationship and they were very close in age. So they acted like brother and sister. And I said, wow, we're so lucky and, and things are going well and things are looking up. And then, bam, she was diagnosed with stage four liver cancer. Just thinking about what you were talking about and, man, finding the the suicide note, what was that like in terms of seeing someone that you love and just looking at them and, and seeing this type of despair in their, li- their, their life? You know, depression is 
a lot of us face depression, you know, I myself faced it in, in a lot of circumstances. And really, I mean, just to narrow it down, I mean, the it's kind of like the absence of pleasure and joy. Mm-hmm. And yeah, once, yeah, what was that like kind of seeing all that? And then the second part is what was it like once you saw that there was some things that were helping and whether it was the therapist or whether it was your boyfriend or whether it was you able to with her able to kind of have those moments of joy and pleasure well i I was listening to one of your podcasts and it was with the the mother who had been running for congress amy and something she said really struck home with me she was talking about that moment when she found out her daughter had died and the sounds that came out of her she didn't even recognize and that that was what happened when I found that note, I was alone in the house. Adrian was still at school. John was at work and I had cleaned her room and I read the note and I read it several times and the sounds that came out of me, I didn't even recognize. I mean, I just, I was almost howling with grief and I just, I, I couldn't believe it. And I called John at work and initially he didn't really believe me and he kept interrupting me and I I was like let me read the whole thing to you just listen it gets worse and once I read the whole thing he said okay I'm coming home and he he came home and and we waited for her to to come home and and we just um had all of her journals like I I at that point I just went through all of her stuff I had never done that before and we had all of our journals out. We just had everything sitting right there in the in the kitchen, waiting for her, and um, and confronted her. And it was it was very difficult. Um, she denied it at first, and and then she went, was angry, and then she was really sad, and told us the truth about how um, depressed she was. And I I really blame myself because there were signs. And I would ask her about stuff, but she just wouldn't tell me. And, and I don't know what I could have done. I don't know if I could have pressed more or if I could have gotten a therapist sooner. But um, I just, I feel very fortunate that I found the note when I did. And when Denise came into our lives, I mean, I just felt relieved. I felt, I felt like if she's not, if Adrian's not talking to me, at least she's talking to somebody. And she really connected with Denise right away and and I could see the change within a few months because she stopped trying to fit in with people and impress people mm-hmm. um, who who didn't even necessarily like her and and she just started being a little bit more herself at school and and that's when I could tell okay so she's she's just coming back to herself and and understanding that she's good enough just the way she is and and that's a pretty remarkable thing. Yeah, I'm always fascinated how good people are at deceiving us, right? Even <laughs> though they're suffering, they want to put on a face that they're not. Oh, yeah. So I'm so glad that you did find that note because it gave her an opportunity to to open up after the anger, after the, all the stuff that she sort of threw at you. She went to the the place that she should have went all along. But for whatever reason, I think a lot of people just... You know, they don't want to go there with parents, friends, really with anyone to actually say the truth and to really sit with that suffering, the truth of like how sad they truly are. It is a, takes a lot of courage to get there. So I'm glad she had the willingness to go there after you approached her and to find joy again and to find herself. I think that's the beauty about what I'm seeing in her life so far is with all the rocky roads and all the the issue she's had and the challenges she was able to get to a place right before the diagnosis of the cancer where she started to find out who she truly was and to appreciate that, that person. Yeah, and, she surely did. And so for you, so you see this change and then how did you guys even know she had cancer? So what happened there? She, uh, she had, come home from school. I was uh, teaching as well and in the same school district. So I was teaching from eight to three and her school schedule was actually seven to two, just slightly off by an hour. And so she usually got home before I did. And and so by the time I would come home, she was doing her homework and I I came home 
from from work and found her curled up in a fetal position on the floor crying saying she couldn't breathe and this was a kid who never cried and and she wanted to go see her pediatrician i mean and she also never volunteered to go to the doctor and we had just seen him two weeks before because she had pulled her shoulder or so we thought and i was i was like okay and i mean she and she was really not feeling good and she just kept saying i can't breathe i can't breathe i can't breathe day before she'd been fine and we go to her pediatrician and who who was very close by which is unusual in los angeles but he was and and he thought we were back because of her shoulder and she said no i can't breathe and she showed him her stomach and she was really swollen and he i knew something was wrong because the look on his face changed so fast and it looked terrible and he he was like well how long has this been going on and and i i always said i was a very fortunate parent because adrian um didn't wear skimpy clothes or show too much skin like a lot of her friends did. And, and so she didn't show me her stomach and I had no idea it had been swollen for a couple of days. And he sent us to the ER. Um, we get to the ER, they take all the information. Well, she had just been to Coachella and she had been there all day. She had been up front. Uh, John took her and my boyfriend and he had complained about his ribs being bruised because they were like pressed up against these metal bars and there were so many people and that's what they thought it was. They thought that she may have internal bleeding because of, you know, these metal bars and Coachella and whatever. I mean, no one really knew what was going on, but they knew this was an otherwise really healthy kid. And so they go to wheel her in for a CAT scan and she had such a, a dry wit. And like I said, she loved to make me laugh. And she said, hey, sissy, watch it be cancer. And I said, bite your tongue. And we just start laughing. And so they wheel her in. And then we're just, we're just waiting. It's still just the two of us. And the ER doctor comes in. And he will not look at her. And again, I was like, oh, boy, this is, this is bad. And he uh, said she has tumors in her liver and lungs. And we're not equipped to handle this situation. I've ordered a transfer to Children's Hospital, and I'm sorry. And he walked out. Yeah. And, and uh, how old is she at this point? She had. She was 15. She had just turned 15. She was finishing her freshman year of high school. So this was only. This was a, a few years after, kind of, um, I guess, starting counseling and therapy for. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. She. She'd been counseling. Uh, about two and a half years at that point. In fact, that night, Wednesday nights, is when she saw Denise. And so one of the first phone calls we made was we we called Denise and said, we're not going to make it, um, that we were at the hospital waiting on the results of the test. Yeah. And so then what, what happened? So did you, you must have told her. And so what was her reaction when you told her? Oh, no, she was right there. The doctor oh, came right in. Oh, okay. and oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. That, he wouldn't look at her. Oh, yeah. We um we both burst into tears at the same time. And then she stopped crying. I'm still crying. And she said, I was just joking. And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, I was just joking when I said, hey, sissy, why'd you be cancer? And and then I started laughing. Um, and that's very much how we dealt with things was through, through humor. And I think she and I both knew at that point that it probably was cancer and it was really bad. But by the time John came to the hospital and some of our friends, I think they just could not believe it. They just would not accept it. They thought it had to be something else. But she and I both knew. And that, and he was right. They, we were at a hospital that was kind of like a city hospital and they didn't treat pediatric patients. So um, they we got into an ambulance. We went to Children's Hospital Los Angeles and that was the last day I worked. That was the last day she was at school. And that was day one of her 147 day cancer journey. And she was take she was in chemo a week later. Wow. So I thought that was interesting how this is like the whole concept of your book, right? It's every day. Mm -hmm. Like what happened? Is it so what could you go through what each day is about? Is it journal entries that you did or that she did? And for your book? Yeah. So the, um, I was trying to figure out, I think it's always important as a writer. It's not just the story, but it's how you choose to tell it. And I was trying to figure out how to tell the story. And it, it came to me in a 
writing workshop um, because Adrian was a writer and she had kept a journal online before she was diagnosed and kept writing in the journal. And I was never allowed to read it. And I didn't until um, a few years after she died. And it was really powerful because her point of view was so different from mine. And so you really get her point of view as a patient. But then I actually kept a medical journal of what was going on every single day. And and that's when it really hit me that that would be a, a great way to like tell the story, but also show two very different points of view. And you, so you have my point of view, and but you hear her voice as well. And then um, I use flashbacks to kind of fill in that time from when she came to live with me up until that moment when she was diagnosed with cancer. Oh, that's very, very interesting. That's really interesting. So it would be obviously your perspective. And then in that day, or maybe in that week, she would, her voice would come in and kind of show her perspective, which is exactly like you say, if it's different, like, that's amazing. And then yeah. would, every now and then put in some kind of flashback stuff. Wow, I'm gonna have to read that for sure. <laughs> yeah, by day three, her voice opens every chapter. And it really kind of comes to head about three quarters of the way in when she has this round of chemo and it, and it goes perfectly, like nothing goes wrong. And I think, oh my God, wow, things are getting better. And she knew things were getting worse in her body. She felt it and she was right. Like two weeks later, we got news that she was getting worse and, and she knew, and, and she, she didn't let on with me. She kept it from me. She very much protected me. And, but I, I was convinced she was getting better. She had to be getting better. Some things don't change, right? Like, <laughs> in the sense of trying to protect you from, you know, the the truth. Yeah, she she tried very hard to be strong for me. And so, what's it like writing that? Because for, for me to read after someone's died their journal, and then put on my own perspective within that, it's got to be so moving because you're seeing a glimpse of someone's life that you didn't fully know. And now you're like really seeing it all, like the whole person almost on what she was thinking, what she was going through. Like, so what was that like for you? Because it must have been an, very interesting emotionally hearing some of the stuff versus what you thought was occurring. Reading her journal. It, yeah, it was it was very difficult. I. I didn't read it until she died. Um, it, it, you know, she'd always kept it. A private and and I w- and I was okay with that. We actually had a few friends that were allowed to read her online journal after what had happened with the whole suicide scare and everything. I, that, that I insisted on that that other people had to at least look at it, and they always let me know if if they were worried about something. But um, but I didn't read it, and at first I could only read it only parts of it. It was really hard, and it was much easier to read it before she got sick because then it was just sort of normal teenage stuff and and she was very funny so it was it was fun to read you know and feel her kind of come through the page and but um it, it was it was really hard it was extremely hard to to read it especially when she got sick and her last entry in the journal was about a month before she died and there and there's something about that that was even more difficult because she really enjoyed writing in that journal and for her not to write those last four weeks really tells me as her um, caregiver how bad she felt. I'm curious if it was therapeutic at all, because like I'm looking at my life. If I, let's say, even had an inkling that let's say I had cancer and and that possibility I could die in the next like couple months, would I start a journal for someone else? Right. Would you say that was helpful to have that journal there or was there a part of you that wished you never had the journal? Was it helpful for, helpful, helpful for me to read it, you mean? Yeah. It was, but but it wasn't it wasn't easy, but it was. And and I'm and I'm glad it's out there. I mean, it's so funny, this story popped into my head. About maybe five years after Adrian died, I was visiting her grave and there was a young woman there and she was from, I want to say Sweden. And 
a very, very sweet young woman. She was maybe 19, 20 years old. And she introduced herself and she was, you know, she had come to the States for a holiday and she, you know, had planned to come to LA, but she said she purposely came to visit my sister's grave. And I was like, what? And she had found my sister's journal online. So the, the journal my sister wrote is online and it's still online to this day. And, and this uh, young woman had read my sister's journal from beginning to end, not knowing that she had gotten sick, not knowing that she had died. And she was so moved by it that she made the decision that when she did go to America and when she did go to Los Angeles, she was going to track down my sister's grave. And she did. And, and, and that was just sort of more, um, not ammunition, but just, uh, it just convinced me even more that I had to write the story. I had to. Yeah, that's wild. And that just, um, isn't it? I mean, it's wild. It, it makes you appreciate the human connection. It makes you think that, like, wow, look at this woman who has found, in, you know, something, a connection with your sister just through reading her stuff online. And your sister's voice was able to, was able to kind of impact her in that type of way that, that she just was on a trip coming to the city and was 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 wanted to pay respects to this person that she connected with from thousands of miles away yeah and, and uh you know it just shows that you know even through something difficult something difficult to read and and go through someone's internal mind we still we connect as humans naturally you connect to them and and yeah. you know we, there's pain in all of our lives but for for us to kind of connect to the what your sister was going through i think i obviously she resonated with it and even you telling this story like you know it resonates with with us and with me in that hey this is a a story of uh, of suffering and and someone being able to talk about their emotions and and the challenges that they faced and there's some there's value in that for sure there's value yeah the, the hardest thing, um, I left Los Angeles five five years ago, and um, the hardest thing about leaving Los Angeles was knowing my sister was buried there. And and and, but I know, but I know she's buried in the right place. There's, I won't ruin it because there's a whole story in the book about it, how she ended up in the cemetery that she's in, and um, and uh, you know, I so I know she's in the right place, but it was it was very hard leaving her because I felt like I was really leaving her initially. And then I realized that she's with me all the time. And I go back to LA every year on Halloween because that was Adrian's favorite holiday. And so I always make sure, even if it's just the day before or whatever, that I'm in Los Angeles on Halloween. And sometimes I'm able to stay for three days. Sometimes it's five days, but I'm there. And, um, and, I, and so I visit her grave. That's amazing. You have, you're able to do that, even though you left. I can like I live pretty close. I haven't really like left the area where my dad has. I'm always like either an hour or two away where my dad's buried. And so like for you to, could you talk about a little bit about the emotions and the challenges of that? Cause I think other people may also have similar circumstances where that may happen to them or it is happening to them right now. So what are things that you've learned along the way when it comes to helping with that decision? It, it, it did come down to knowing one that, she was in the right place. And I guess there's a whole story in the book about it, but I'll, I'll just kind of tease the listeners that the, uh, the cemetery lost my sister's body. So the day after my sister died, I ran around Los Angeles trying to find her body, which in retrospect is very amusing. <laughs> and she would have found it very funny. Um, but because they lost her body, it's how she ended up at a different cemetery where she's buried. It's called the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. It's where a lot of famous people are buried. And um, so I feel like she's in the most amazing place and, <laughs> and she would have loved it. And she has a view of the Hollywood sign from where she's buried. Um, and, uh, and months after, later when I was cleaning out her room, she was an artist and she actually had had her artwork displayed at several galleries in Los Angeles. And I found a sketch she had done and, and this is in the book and it's a view of the Hollywood sign. It's the exact view from her grave. I kid you not. And it said she titled the sketch Future. 
and I just got chills. Like I still get chills thinking about it when I, when I found this, this sketch in her room, um, after we had buried her, it was like, oh my gosh. Um, so I know she's in the right place. So that's, that's one. I mean, I know that, that she's supposed to be there and, um, and two, I mean, I can go visit her. There's nothing stopping me from getting on a plane and going to visit her. And I've just made that commitment to myself, not to anyone else, but for myself that I will be in LA on Halloween and visit. Like I said, even if I only stay a day, even if it's, you know, I, I just, I have to be there. It's a commitment I've made to myself. Um, it's also a great opportunity, of course, to see other people, but, um, but mainly it's, it's to visit her grave. Um, and I guess three, it's just remembering like she's with me all the time. I pray to her every night. I say a prayer to her every single night. I have since since she died. And that's very important to me. And I, I have photos of her everywhere in my house. Um, and, and so she's with me. I mean, how could she not be with me? Yeah. And, and you know, just thinking back, uh, you know, looking, thinking back and to what you said about getting her when she was eight come living with you and that time that you spent together um you know it's, it's just beautiful it's beautiful and you know now now what you're doing is you know obviously a different type of relationship uh after death and i think the rituals are beautiful i think that's amazing i love that idea i love that you know you're setting the time to have this moment with her every year and in something that was special to her special to both of you and even when it comes down to keeping her in your thoughts or, or having a prayer, a moment every night, um, thinking about this person that you shared so much with, that you raised, that you, you had different types of roles and bonds with this, with this, uh, with Adrian. And, uh, you know, it's just, it touches my heart and it's just, it's, uh, it's, um, man, it's tough. It's tough, but it, there's also some beauty, uh, definitely beauty in there. Thank you. Yeah, and I heard one of your guests say something similar. I have, um, I have Adrian's signature. Um, one thing that she did in her handwritten journals is she always signed her name in our handwritten journals. So uh, years ago, gosh, I guess over ten years now, I found a tattoo artist in LA, and he specialized in signatures. Like that was this guy's thing that he did really well. And so I have her signature on my arm, on the inside of my arm, like uh, on my wrist, and in her favorite color in blue. And so I have that too. Wow. You tell how much she impacted your life, which is just a beautiful thing for me to hear and for you to remember her so much, like every day and to pray. That's, uh, I wish like when I die, people have that in, in, in some way, like I've impacted their lives in the way that she's impacted yours. I think that's a phenomenal life that someone can say they had, um, when, when I see this sort of stuff going on because you pray every day, are you having, I'm just curious, are you, are you having a lot of like dreams of her? Because if your last thought of her going to, is her really her going to bed, like, is that being incorporated into your dreams often? Not as much as they used to be. I mean, it's funny. Um, one of the things about your podcast I was so intrigued by is, is the dream aspect because I, I've had dreams since I was a kid and I still remember dreams I've had as a kid. Like I've always been this uh, very vivid dreamer. And I remember once reading an article, you know, about dreaming in color. I'm like, who doesn't dream in color? I mean, like I didn't even, I didn't know that was a thing. Right. And in fact that there was a period of time where I actually took some medication to suppress my dreams because I don't feel rested most of the time because of my dreams. I talk in my sleep. Uh, my partner now knows that, you know, not to trust anything I say in my sleep. Like he's, had, he's had full on conversations with me and he's like, you really don't remember, do you? Wow. When you sleep. And I don't, but I certainly, um, that the first year or so after Adrian died, I mean, I felt her presence. She died at home in her bed and I felt her presence everywhere. I wrote the book, the first draft of the book in her bedroom, which we had turned into a guest room. And it was, it was the most special room in the house. I mean, it had the best energy in that house and I, I felt her near me all the time. And now it's a little bit less so. And I kind of feel like where she is, time is different. So I like to think that perhaps, you know, a year here 
is a day where she is. And so, you know, for me, it's, it's been over 18 years since she died, but for her, she's like, I haven't even been gone three weeks, you know? (laughs) So, so I like to think of it that way. And, and maybe that's why I felt her so close to me that first year. But, um, but I don't feel her like right next to me, even like, even with that prayer every night, I don't feel her or see her in my dreams like I, like I used to. And so you have had some dreams of her though, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. And, um, I've had dreams of her. I've had terrible dreams about our, our mother. Um, I had a lot, I had a lot of, uh, I had a lot of dreams of her that were very good. And then I had a lot of bad dreams about our mother and other people like the first two or three years after Adrian died, I, I ended up losing all of my friends, like all of my friends. And it was kind of going through a whole nother type of grief. Um, cause I had a very close knit circle of friends who were all there for me when Adrian was sick. And it was very difficult to lose this group of people, sort of one person at a time. And, um, and yeah, so that those were those weren't really dreams. Those were more nightmares. But um, but yeah, I, I've definitely had dreams of of her. Um, one dream I had that was just so beautiful. She, um, she we were still in the house in Burbank, and she looked the way she did uh, toward the end of her illness. So she was still very thin and, and beautiful and bald, but she was in her blue dress that she was buried in that she'd picked out. And we're in the backyard in, in Burbank, and she's looks very ethereal, you know, almost like, almost like dreamlike, you know, in the dream, like a dream within a dream. And she's talking to me, but I don't hear what she's saying. And then behind her, there's this like semicircle of people sort of sitting down, and they're listening to her. And it just it just felt like she was sort of talking to me or to them. And it almost felt like I was interrupting a conversation or I was interrupting like a place, like I wasn't supposed to be there. And, but it was a positive dream. It was very positive and it made me feel good. And yeah, it it made me feel really good. I'm glad you, I'm glad you're having dreams that are reminding you of her. And when you're waking up, you can sort of have that a good quality to it. It's interesting how you said like you're almost visiting her rather than she was visiting you. Like you're interrupting something that she was doing. I did. That one I really, I mean, I really felt like I was interrupting. Like I wasn't supposed to be there. Yeah. That's funny. I like that. (laughs) You don't hear that that often. Like a lot of the dreams that people do share, it's, you know, they're there for them in a way. But here it's like you're saying, oh, what's going on? What are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A lot of them are like you're pulling the person here towards you. And it's like you're pulling them away from what they have to do. And then they kind of say, oh, I got to go. I got to go back. <laughs> this, this one was like she was pulling you. And like, you know, it's like, hey, welcome to my world. Yeah. I, I, I Yeah, that's how it was. I, I think she just needed me to know that she was okay. And that was her way of saying, "Hey, I'm I'm good. I've I've got things handled." I mean, she wrote this. Um, so she had assignments that she did during the summer. She was sick because she did go back to school in the fall. She just didn't uh, go to school. It was homeschool, but um, she was an honor student, so she had these assignments she had to keep doing. And she had to write her own version of a Greek myth, and she wrote yeah. about death. She wrote a myth about death, and I. I just didn't even want to read it. And, but I always read all of her essays and proofread them for her and gave her feedback and stuff. And, and what I actually put in her funeral program was sort of the rough draft of her essay. She never had a chance to finish it, but her rough drafts were like, you know, most people's final drafts. They were really well put together. And she wrote this whole myth about death and what happens and why some people come back and others don't and what's the purpose. And that was extremely hard for me to read because it, it felt like she was just sort of describing the next part of her journey and where she was going and why she wasn't going to come back because she, she had done what she had set out to do with her life and she was moving on. And that was make you a mother. 
<laughs> it was, but it, I think it really, she really wanted people to know more about her cancer and she wanted to raise awareness and talk about it. And also she just had this tremendous impact on the people around her. Once she really came into her own, it, it was, I mean, the turnout for her memorial service was incredible. And and it wasn't just the amount of people, it was the 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 different kinds of people. I mean, when you think about high school, I think most of us think about cliques. And she didn't really have a clique. It's like everyone was attracted to her. And and just to give you an example, so there was this really, really cute girl. And I allowed people to tell short stories if they wanted to during the memorial service. And we're talking like over a hundred. 20 some people. People had to go outside because there was no more room. It was a fire hazard. And so, and this one girl gets up there and she's cute. She's blonde. She's perky. And she's like, okay, well, I'm so and so. And she's like, I'm the cheerleader that Adrian loved to pretend to hate, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and that was, that was, that was spot on. It really, really was. And, uh, but she just, she had a way of just sort of getting along with everybody not not to get along but because she was just her own person yeah and it sounds like through the therapy she was able to break out of um because you know like we talked about her like you talked about earlier and mentioned earlier you know middle school grade seven and eight like that popularity thing is it's the world it's yeah. uh you know fitting in and being accepted by a peer group that it's so important and when you don't feel it like it's it can be very tough on a, on a person and so it sounds like obviously through therapy and, and you know growing up and stuff like that she was able to kind of find her own voice and also realize that you know it, to be who she was and you know if people look take it fine if they don't that's what it is and then to have her maturity level you know kind of it, it, it was different. It's different. You know, you're 15 year old dealing with cancer, you know, writing this short piece, Greek tragedy, describing mm -hmm. things that like these in general, kids aren't really thinking about or doing that. And and that perspective, I think, was is important, not just for her peer group, but for everybody to kind of pay attention and, and hear and see, because in general, even in life, like, you don't, we're not we're not faced with these topics or, or talk about it unless it happens in your own family or life. And I right. think that's important to kind of hear those stories and hear that voice of like what it's like. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm super curious. Did she incorporate elements of, I know you said she was funny uh, of comedy into that particular piece. And that, no, no, she, she did okay, just not mm -mm. straight no. Greek tragedy. It was. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. It was, uh, it was it, I don't know if it was tragic. It was more just sort of matter of fact, like this is what happens. Mm. And I really encourage people to talk about death and to have the death conversation. It's something I'm very passionate about now because it's something that happens to all of us. Um, I know there are a few people who think it will never happen to them, but but it does eventually, whether you're, you know, 100 or 150. And um, I, I think the head of Twitter is going to live to 150, he said. But, um, but it's, <laughs> you know, but it it is going to happen. And it's I wish Adrian and I had had the conversation and I just couldn't bring myself to do it. And and but I wish I wish we had. Um, and I think it's. Um, an important conversation to, to, to have. And so when I talk to patients and caregivers now, um, especially the, you know, the patients, um, if they are very aware of their disease and, and they have accepted that, you know, at some point this disease might, you know, kill them. I mean, again, we're all going to die. So I really encourage them to have that conversation. Um, and it, can bring you a real sense of peace because once you've had the conversation, you you can move forward. You don't have to necessarily have it again unless the circumstances have drastically changed. But it also helps you helps you if you've had that conversation and you do have a serious illness. It will help you make decisions very quickly and better decisions because you know sort of what direction to go in. And the, the one thing I can say about Adrian is that I knew her so well that. When she wasn't able to speak for herself, I felt very much guided and made the right decisions for her. And there was a moment um, toward the end where 
the doctors wanted to put her on the respirator and and basically um the ER doctors had put her into a coma by accident. I mean, it was a real nightmare and I was not convinced that she wasn't going to wake up. I knew she would wake up. And if I had put her on a respirator, she probably never would have woken up. And so I just trusted my gut and I knew what she wanted and I knew she didn't want to be in a hospital. And so I went against medical um, recommendations, if you will, and did not put her on a respirator. And again, I won't ruin the story, but um, but it's a really good one of how she woke up. And she woke right up and she said, I don't know what the fuss is about. I was just dreaming. <laughs> and we went home and, and that's how I was able to get her home and how she was able to die in her own room and her own bed, surrounded by people who loved her, not hooked up to any machine. And if I gave her anything, you know, if, if nothing else, I gave her a good death. And I feel very proud that I did that because um, I had to fight for it really hard. Um, but it came from knowing what she wanted. And I think it is actually easier, of course, if you are the parent of a minor child, it is easier to make those decisions. If you are the spouse of an adult, it can be actually much harder to go against medical advice, you know, unless you've had those conversations and you have something in writing. So, um, so I encourage people to, to have the conversation, you know, to really talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, looking back after, you know, facing, you know, really your biggest fears, not only once, almost like I would imagine obviously going through the, the suicide letter, finding that that's a huge challenge. And then finding out, you know, Adrian has cancer and then, you know, going through that process and facing these huge fears, you know, looking back where you are now, what did that do for your life moving forward? Um, it changed my life. I mean, everything changed. I, when I was raising Adrian, I was a teacher by day and, and an actress in, as well. I was, I was teaching to support us, but I was pursuing an acting career and my goal was basically to land a television show by the time she went to college so I could pay for it. I mean, that was my whole goal. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and I was getting to a point where, I mean, things were going really well. The, the year before she died, I actually was doing a lot of uh, directing and theater and as well as acting and theater. And um, I, I used to use her all the time to help me build sets and stuff. And like I said, she was an artist, so she could do anything. And, yeah, I mean, I just, it, I just, it changed my whole life. I mean, I didn't care anymore about the things I was passionate about. I only taught to be on her schedule and it just turned out I was really good at it. And so I did keep teaching a while longer. Um, and, and I did keep pursuing acting a little while longer, but I remember driving home from an audition that had gone really well. And I remember not even caring. Like, I just didn't even care. It's like, okay, if I get the part, great. I can pay this bill or that bill. Like I didn't really, it just became about the money. And I was like, okay, that's not good. I really don't care anymore. And so that, I mean, I really started to make major changes in my life. And so I would not be doing the things I'm doing now if Adrian hadn't died. And I'd like to kind of joke that I don't think anyone says when they want to grow up, they want to run a nonprofit. I mean, I don't think anybody, I don't know anybody that does anyway. Um, and maybe there are people who, you know, thanks to Shark Tank say, I want to be an entrepreneur when I grow up. But, but when I was a kid, no one said that, you know, and, and so I never could have imagined having a nonprofit and then also now having this health tech startup. I, I just never could have imagined it. And you want to talk about your non-for-profit a bit? Yeah, sure. So um, it's called Blue Fairy, the Adrian Wilson Liver Cancer Association. And Blue Fairy's mission is to prevent, treat, and cure primary liver cancer, specifically hepatocellular carcinoma, through research, education, advocacy. And we are still um, the only nonprofit specifically dedicated to primary liver cancer in the U.S. And it is the most common type of cancer. So even though Adrian was 15, she had what is considered a very adult cancer, and it has more than doubled um, in this country since since she was diagnosed. It just keeps, it's one of the few cancers in this country that keeps going up 
in, in terms of being diagnosed and it's highly preventable though. And yeah, so I, I talk to patients and caregivers all the time and that work out of Blue Fairy is where I sort of identified a problem in that even when given the best possible information, most patients and caregivers don't know what to do with it and they don't know those next steps to take. And because of my background in teaching and um, and also even coaching, that's what I was doing. I found myself coaching patients and caregivers pro bono, but realizing, wow, that was a really unmet need. And so that's how my for-profit evolved um, fairly new called Cancer University or Cancer U, as we like to call it. And it's an online membership platform for cancer patients and caregivers to really educate and empower them to become advocates for themselves during their cancer journey. The end users of the platform are cancer patients and caregivers, but our actual customers are payers, hospitals, and pharmaceutical companies. So it's a B2B to C business model. Um, So those are my two things right now, um, in addition to my book. And I just, I know that this is what I was supposed to be doing. Wow. That's fascinating. And that's fascinating. And and that's a great, you did a great job of explaining that. I mean, that's unfortunate that this is, that cancer's, this type of cancer is growing and it's also aspects of it are preventable. (laughs) And, you know, you see that in life in general, like, you know, I myself, like I remember having various injuries that I go to see a doctor with and and it's just not explained properly. And then, you know, just how to treat it's not explained. And my thinking for it is, is, is set in a certain way, but like, you're right. If you, you know, you have that person like yourself or others who are able to teach this to not only the patients, but the, um, the caregivers to kind of fill that gap that was missing. Yeah. Um, that's, that's some great work and amazing stuff. And I'm really glad to hear that, you know, this is, what you feel like is your calling in a sense and, and you feel fulfilled from this. Yeah. Yeah, I do. And I like to think Adrian would be proud and, and with liver cancer specifically, it's, it's come a long way since she was diagnosed and mm-hmm. people are, are living longer, even with the advanced stage like she had. Um, and that's good to see. I mean, there's no, there's no cure yet, but again, it's also highly preventable. Yeah, I think it's amazing to be able to educate and raise awareness like you're doing because it can be a lonely road when you don't yeah. when you don't know and you're just trusting yeah. doctors who just don't have the time. No, to, they don't. To give to give you. So I'm glad that you're there and you're trying to make a difference to help others in the similar position that you're in and also your sister. And so our final question on the podcast, as you know, is to ask you if you could have a dream tonight of your sister, what would that dream look like? Well, don't let me forget that I have a gift for your listeners. So don't let me forget. Um, okay. And But I did think about this question. And the very first thing that popped into my mind is um, music. So Adrian and I had very different musical taste. And I didn't really appreciate her taste in music until after she died. And I started listening to all of it. And I still don't. I'm sorry, Adrian. I still don't love Jane's Addiction the way she did. <laughs> or really any of those bands from the 90s. Um, that she loves so much, but um, I really did fall in love with Queen after she died, and Queen was one of her all-time favorite bands, so if I could have a dream tonight, it would be that she and I are at a Queen concert with Freddie Mercury um, singing, I mean, because who else should sing, and that would be amazing, like that would be a really, if I could program my brain to have that dream, um, that would be so much fun to have. Did you want her in that blue dress again? No, like I, I envision her actually, I envision her the way she was before cancer and, um, she, I wouldn't let her dye her hair until she turned 14 and then she dyed it like every color under the sun. And so, (laughs) you know, it was red, it was blue, it was purple. And so I kind of picture her with that hair, but she always kept her hair like in a very specific haircut. She had very thick hair. And so it was always kind of a blunt cut with these blunt bangs and, um, I just, yeah, I kind of picture her in her, you know, dark clothes and there's going to be some blue somewhere because she loved blue so much. And, um, yeah, she, she was taller than I am and, you know, kind of picture that. So, yeah, I think that sounds incredible. That sounds like a party. And uh, doesn't it sound like a party (laughs) to to be able to, and I would imagine I'm not a parent, but I would imagine 
parents always would probably strive to be not only a parent but also a friend and you obviously were able to kind of play those roles so you know i could just see you guys having fun at a concert with uh man like all the amazing queen songs (laughs) we don't get to be a friend really um well some parents do but for me i you know you really don't get to be that friend until they grow up Mm. and so we, we were sort of beginning that those stages you know we were getting there but we weren't quite there yet and I was really looking forward to it you know I was I was looking forward to her going to college and um and having her come home occasionally in fact I wanted her to go to college far away because I think it's really good for parents or kids to get away from their parents and and um so I was always talking about Harvard and Yale and Princeton and worst case scenario Stanford like that was my worst case scenario for her (laughs) and it and uh yeah and it came out when she was sick um it it came out that she had she wanted to go to USC Mm. um because because I went there and I took her to that campus when she was really little and she came out to visit um a few years before she came to live with me she came out for um a visit and she spent a lot of time on that campus with me and she loved it and when I heard she wanted to go to USC, I'm like, oh, my God, you can do so much better. I mean, <laughs> and here I am, a two-time alum of USC. But, um, but you know, I, I wanted her to get out of L.A. And she, no, she had every intention of staying. So yeah. that's kind of the other thing. If she was still alive, if she was still alive I'd, be, I'd still be in L.A. I have no doubt I'd still be there. It's a beautiful place. And uh, yeah, I got I could see the same thing. Why would I want to go to Boston, <laughs> Harvard, when I can stay in California? Yeah, yeah, good point. Yeah, she really she really loved LA. She did. But now I, I live in a city where she was born, so I guess it all comes full circle. Well, this was a very meaningful conversation. I really enjoyed it, and really made me rethink on even categories because I noticed even in our talking I kept calling her your sister but I didn't call her your daughter I thought that was interesting for me in processing because you're both but yet I kept going back to sister and I just think it's it's phenomenal what you do and and I'm amazed you had both roles that you took on both roles so beautifully because I can just look at the love you have for her and what you're doing now to help other people and and that for me like that that really touches my heart that she meant so much to you and, and I know you meant so much to her and what you're doing is definitely providing her more legacy and to who she is and I got to read this diary and I might have to go visit <laughs> to her uh, her gravesite when I when I get down there yeah, <laughs> yeah and also um also John um that's his name right here I guess boyfriend at the time or my husband. ex yeah 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 he still lives yeah. in los angeles you know, yeah yeah and shout out to all the people who are taking on these roles and, and who give that support you know i'm sure there's lots of people in the world who, who don't live in normal type of families and situations like that um and that's beautiful that's beautiful um andrea we're um obviously gonna wrap up but i know you said you had something for our listeners so we're excited to hear what that is Oh yeah. So is it another group dream? <laughs> no, no. Uh, if well, sort of. Um, if your listeners, if if there's a newly uh, diagnosed cancer patient, or if they're a caregiver of a cancer patient, they can go to cancer.university. So that's that's the website, cancer.university. And if they click apply now, um, they can have a free lifetime membership to Cancer U because we're in this interesting stage. We're about to launch a pilot, so it's kind of a great time. And the coupon code they need, so they wouldn't pay, they just click this little button and it says, I have a coupon code. They put in the coupon code GRIEFDREAMS, all caps. It'll be free. That is amazing. Thank you so much for providing that to us and our listeners. And I don't think we've ever had anybody offer a coupon code in our name. So that's <laughs> very, we feel honored. Ah, well, sure. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Um, so, and that's uh, Cancer You. And also, so at this point is a good time to actually shout out all your handles and uh, also where people can find your book and the website again. Okay. Um, Best place to find the book is betteroffbald.com 
because all the links to all the retailers are there. Um, so betteroffball.com, um, cancer.university. And um, on social media, I'm either Andrea Wilson Woods or Instagram and Twitter, I'm Andrea Will Woods because they don't like a lot of characters. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, uh, once again, thank you, Andrea. This has been a really beautiful conversation. It's, it's difficult having these having these conversations and you did an amazing job um, you, you told it with a lot of courage and um, to, to walk us through what it was like uh, you know being a parent a sister you know a friend to a uh, Adrian and also um, you know witnessing and being a part of you know the struggles that you've gone through um, in the life but also the the, the beauty that came through the, those moments um, in terms of learning more about this beautiful person, seeing the journey and her writing and, and, and being able to find out more about her, you know, even uh, even after death through different diaries and journals. Uh, so thank you for sharing that with us. You're welcome. Thank you for the amazing questions. Uh, so, yeah, people can check out our platform at griefdreams.ca for more information on the topic. We added a donation button and there are perks to those who donate. If you have Facebook, you can join the Grief Dreams group. You can share your dreams or hear more dreams of others. We are on Twitter and Instagram at Grief Dreams. And as always, we like to end the podcast with love and gratitude from us to you. Introduce myself. You have introduced yourself. This is a very good conversation.